0: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another episode of 747 Conversations. We are so delighted you've taken the time to be here with us today. I know what y'all really believe in is the power of gratitude, empathy, compassion in marketing, leadership, sales, etc. We've got a really interesting episode here today. Uh, A guy that I've known for a number of years, but I didn't quite know, uh, the depth of the interesting things he believed in <laughs> until reading his newest book with me today is Michael F. Shine, a, uh, the founder and president of Microfame fame media, a marketing agency that specializes in making idea based companies famous in their industry. He is the author of the hype handbook that was just released with McGraw Hill and it's a really interesting book. I mean, I remember when Mark Manson's famous book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Hoot, came out. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that on air. Um, but it, it really made me look at marketing and sales and thought leadership a whole different way. And Michael takes that to the next degree. And it's a super interesting book. I really, really hope you'll go out and get it. We have an interesting history, me and Michael. We met through our dear friend Michael Roderick. Um, I since know that we have a lot of mutual friends in, in common, including Richard Larimer from Larimer PR. But when Michael and I first met face to face, I was doing a social experiment. I wanted to prove to myself that I could host a 747 dinner while blindfolded one night, just to prove to myself that I knew my model up and down. And so one day I practiced being blind for a day and it just so happened to be a day where I was scheduled to go out to lunch at the core club with Michael F. Shine and I showed up with my blindfold on my goggles my walking stick and I sat down for a meal and he hand fed me calamari it was a, it was an interesting you know anecdote in the relationship but I think it's a testament to how weird yet genius and creative he is so I welcome you, Michael F. Shine, to the podcast.
1: Well, I am so pleased to be here. I forgot about hand-feeding you, Calamari. That's very funny. <laughs> I, I, since we've been in quarantine for uh, close to a year, I don't think I've hand-fed anyone anything for a very long time. So,
0: Well, you are you are missing out on the yeah. intricacies in life. And I I'm know. so excited to dive into the book on, you know, A, how you became a professional hype artist, why others should too. But the first question that we always start off with on our podcast is, Michael, if you could give credit or thanks to one person in your life that you don't give enough credit or thanks to, that you've never thought to thank, and albeit is not mentioned in the acknowledgments in your book, who would that be?
1: I'm going to say Sandy Lewis who passed away a couple of years ago, sadly. She was my sixth grade English teacher and my drama teacher in seventh and eighth grade, and then directed some plays in, in high school that I was in. And, and I'm no actor, but um, I am a writer, and I've always wanted to be a writer. Uh, and she really encouraged that. She, she really, really saw something special in my work. And I don't know when I look back at that old work, you know, you see all the flaws in it. I was 11 years old. I don't know if she was puffing me up because she liked me as a person, which made me become better because I thought well of myself or if she really saw something. But um, yeah, I wish I could, I wish I could thank her for that.
0: Well, it, as you talk about her, you know, being influential in theater and drama and writing early on, you know, uh, way back yonder, and that actually being an entire chapter and and hype strategy number ten in your book, embracing yeah. theater and drama. I would say her legacy has impacted not only you but the you know thousands of readers that will read your book in the coming years. So, cheers to her, yep, yeah. um, and cheers to carrying on her legacy. This Absolutely. Book. Um. Well, Michael, you um you wrote this entire book about hype. And hype is such a popular word amongst millennials and zillennials or anybody <laughs> that's looking to launch a brand or launch a, a B2B service-based business. Um, hype is a, a pretty interesting thing. But, you know, it's 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 been done the wrong way through history. It's, it's also been done the right way throughout history, as you outline in the book. But, you know, bringing an idea to life, as you say, requires hype. And to be a hype artist is to interact with people based on how they really act rather than how they say or think they do. How did this hype come into your life to begin with?
1: Well, I've always been interested in these sorts of topics. You know, back when I was a teenager and I had no intention of going into business, I always liked learning about sort of offbeat business people that I didn't even think of as business people. So various pranksters, a lot of rock and hip hop managers who would get their bands notoriety by doing off the wall things. And that that always fascinated me. And even my taste was kind of reflected in that, although I didn't know it in the, at the time. I mean, the kind of music that I liked best was, was punk rock, which was less about how well you could play and sing and more about what reaction you got out of people. So it was all about manipulating emotion, but to add color to the world, which I found to be a positive thing. And then, you know, time went by. I tried to do a variety of artistic things, which we can talk about, one of which was playing in my own band that got, you know, a bit of notoriety, but we never quote unquote made it because that's very, very hard to do. And I got a job and I started to do well there. It was very brass tax kind of job we operated customer service centers and by the time i left i was there about a decade i was a vice president um you know at the company but I, at the end i really hated it and i felt that i didn't have much meaning in my life so i eventually quit and i tried to become a freelance copywriter and I had a really, really hard time for a year. I mean, unlike a lot of people I know, I was not a natural salesperson. I was actually quite bad at sales. And I guess I was bad at marketing, too, in the traditional sense, because I read every marketing and sales book there was, and it didn't add an extra dollar to my you know, bank account. And then I remembered when I was younger... I was really good at what some people might call marketing, but I never thought of as marketing. So when we had our band, uh, you know, yeah, we, we used to sell out a popular club all the time and we did it through antics. I mean, we got ourselves on Showtime at the Apollo in order to be booed off. We knew we would be booed off because we knew it would get us attention and it got us on the cover of New York Press and, and just various uh-huh. things like that. Yeah. So I said to myself, well, what if I tried this approach? I'm pretty desperate right now. What if I tried this approach with my business? Cause I have nothing to lose. And I did that and we can talk about what I did, but it worked really, really well. And I started to get clients. So I said to myself, is it that I'm bad at marketing and sales or am I thinking of marketing and sales the wrong way? You know, there's, there's, all of these people out there sort of giving you these platitudes, whether they're focusing on the technology and the sales funnels and the A-B testing and the do A, B, C, and D. And then there's you know, other people who present themselves a certain way as sort of these upright, perfect characters. And then when you get to know them, they're they're as imperfect as the rest of us. So I said, what if I took a more clear-eyed, realistic point of view and looked at the people who are actually really good at getting a lot of emotion and attention drummed up. And if I can apply those tactics ethically, um maybe that would be a cool thing to do and and helpful for me and other people. And I did that and it worked. So the reason I chose the word hype, I I looked to hip hop because in a lot of times the word hype is considered a negative thing, but in hip-hop, it's always been a positive. It's like the hype man in public enemy, get the crowd excited. So I thought that was a you know, we have enough marketing in the world. I think we need a little more hype.
0: I like that. The, um, the, I mean, the, the, arguably the most, uh, popular community of young kids in the world right now are people that live in what's called the hype house mm -hmm. in LA uh, on on TikTok. So it's, it's entirely correct. And, you know, I want to spend the next, you know, part of this, thank you for telling your story. And, you know, it's, um, it's always good to know that I have a friend that I can call if I need a backyard band every now and then. Oh, but you, uh, <laughs> I, I
1: would not count on that anymore. It's been a long time.
0: <laughs> I um, I couldn't afford you if I tried. Um, but no, I, I want to spend the next part of this conversation really talking about the the interesting principles that, I- that are in your book. Um, and I don't want to do this in sequential order. It just happens that one of my favorite chapters happens to be the first chapter. Right? Okay. This whole book is is talking about 12 indispensable Success secrets, hype strategies that you know our listeners can apply. And the first hype strategy is is to make war, not love. Now, he, here's what's interesting, on a multitude of reasons. You know, we built an entire business on gratitude and making love and bringing people together and having all this kind of good stuff. So, what are we doing having someone on our podcast who talks about making war? Well, you know. Hype strategy number one is talking about hatred being the great unifier. Why picking fight works. The cornerstones of propaganda. You know, I have a dear friend, David Burkus, who I've been in a couple of his books. He's a a dear friend of mine. But one of his one of his recent books, which was an Audible original, was called "Pick a Fight" Mm -hmm. and how that builds better teams. And the story you give in this book is really near and dear to my heart because I had the opportunity to have dinner with the fella in this book, uh, at John Levy's house one night. And, and, um, I really believe in the, in the story you used to, to go into the, your history into music. I want to ask you to tell the story of why you (laughs) put a, um, a Jewish guy from Hawaii in your book, Shep <laughs> Gordon, as an example of making war not love and how to create a big splash on an international setting. Tell me that story.
1: Well, first of all, I think it's very cool that you got to spend some time with him. He's a really interesting person and character. Um, you know, Shep Gordon, among many other things that he he's done subsequently, Uh, some of which have to do with food, which might be the connection that you had with him. (laughs) But um, he he became first notable for being Alice Cooper's manager in the late 60s and up until the present day. And, you know, Alice Cooper was a band. um, Now the singer took the name and they played kind of weird music and Shep Gordon didn't even really like it. So he took that as a challenge. He said, can I make this band successful despite the music? And he had this idea that if parents hated this band, kids would like the band because this was at the height of the generation gap. And we all go through a period where we um, are bound together by being different than the people who raised us. Right. We want to stake our claim as a generation. It's the war with what came before us. So, um, you know, he did this originally by making them the original horror rock band. They had guillotines on stage. They had, you know, (laughs) you know, they would ostensibly rip the head off of chickens, although that never happened, you know, and they would get all this press around it. But but then they, you know, Shep booked a gig for them in London and they didn't have a following there. And it was at Wembley Arena, which is quite large and by about. A week and a half or so before the show, they had only sold 500 tickets. So it was en route to be an epic disaster. So what Shep did is he had this, the singer, Alice Cooper, take have a picture taken buck naked with nothing but a boa constrictor over, <laughs> over his, his nether regions. And he blew up the picture to the size of a billboard and mounted it on the back of a truck. Then he essentially paid off the truck driver to have the truck break down in Piccadilly <laughs> Circus. Yeah, so that's like Times Square. It's the most heavily trafficked area of London at rush hour. So there were lines of cars snaking—no pun intended—on in, multiple levels, um, <laughs> you know, around Piccadilly Circus, blocked by this crazy uh, picture and and the the. Elderly people and the middle-aged people of, of England went crazy. I mean, the Parliament brought it up; it was this crazy, crazy thing, and they sold out Wembley Arena. So, yeah, I mean, the the idea here—this is a very stark idea—and you're certainly not going to do this in in a, in a traditional business setting, although you might. But with blowing up billboards of naked people, but the idea here is that for many reasons, we bond with others that we perceive being like us much, much more powerfully in opposition to other fit people, things, and ideas than we do just on their own. And if you can be the leader around that movement, it gives you a lot of power and a lot of notoriety. Yeah. Do, do
0: most people call that authority leadership these days? Yeah, I, I think
1: that's part of it. I think authority leadership can mean a lot of things. I mean, authority leadership can can mean something like you know, a very standard example of that. A doctor traditionally wore a white coat, not because they needed a white coat. I'm sure that had some some origin at some point that's long forgotten. But you look at someone in a white coat and you're like, this person is a doctor and your brain immediately trusts them more. So that's a an external symbol of authority. There's a lot that goes into authority. I don't know that Alice Cooper would be considered an authority, but he was the leader of a tribe, right? And and that's beyond the Seth Godin definition of a tribe. I mean, there's been research done. There's a paleontologist or an anthropologist, I'm sorry, who found that our ancestors are derived from a small group of human beings off the southern coast of Africa that found a a nutrient-rich food source that was easy to get. And the only thing that, that determined the difference between survival and death was whether you could bond closely with people like you and hate people that weren't like you. So you could control mm. the food source. So it's actually this this idea of bonding with people like us and dismissing and disliking people not like us is actually driven by oxytocin. It's an actual hormone, a chemical that, that drives this behavior it's on a it's on a, a on a molecular level does that mean you have to hate people and cause people to hate people it doesn't there there are more positive ways to channel that which we can talk about but but it is it is the reality
0: yeah you know it's interesting hype strategy number 8 is to make it scientific and you talking about oxytocin and serotonin yeah. is certainly something you cover in the in the second half of your book and it's so interesting you know if you think back thousands of years ago nomadic tribes and Sebastian Jünger was such a great proponent with his book tribes. Yeah. But you know, you had to get along in society, you know, you were born into a hundred person village. If you didn't get along, you were an outcast and you would die. Right.
1: That's right. That's just what happened. That's right.
0: Um, so it's obviously not as epic of, uh, you know, fragility now in a social structure, but it's what's happening You know, we have a loneliness epidemic, you know, building hype and building a tribe around you like Michael's talking about isn't just good for business. It's good for one of the greatest epidemics our country faces today, which is that 51% of the American workforce reports being lonely on on a consistent basis. This equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day, seven years off your life. People want to belong,
1: right? It's really interesting that you bring this up because- I'll tell you, some of the most powerful experiences in my life, <clears throat> excuse me, are when I was having a transcendent experience with other people, often that I didn't know. So at certain concerts where you sort of lose yourself and you're in this group, or I remember seeing Pulp Fiction of all things, and it was a packed movie theater, and it was a very different kind of movie, and everyone was like laughing together, and I was taken you know, out of myself. And I see that at Tony Robbins rallies. I see that at Amway rallies. I see that probably at your dinners. You know, I, I think that ability to create transcendence is not only very effective, it, it can be a very enriching, powerful force.
0: Yeah, I I, I kind of want to skip around and then I'm going <clears> to <throat> get get back. I want to get back to Alice Cooper in a, in a second. But since you just literally brought up Tony Robbins, yeah. um, you know, one, one of your, you know, one of your strategies, uh, it involves pain <laughs> and yeah. you talk about, you talk about transcendence and transformation, um, you, you know, alternating doses of pleasure and pain is ultimately what creates transformation and transcendence and hype and people want to belong. Tell me the example in your book regarding Tony Robbins.
1: So th- <clears throat> this actually surprised me a lot. You know there there are a lot of things in this book that I did in my own practice in my own marketing agency and then confirmed with research or tried to disconfirm. This was something I learned in my research that blew me away. So everyone knows, well if you know of Tony Robbins at all, um you you almost always identify him with the with the hot call walk, right? Like where where at the end of his big seminar and I've never been to one of his seminars, but my understanding Is that he has people walk over burning hot coals with the idea that if you can bring yourself to do that, you I I guess the idea is that it it shows that you your courage has increased. Please correct me if I'm wrong, because I I've not been to, to one of his seminars, but people find this an extremely powerful experience. And if I'm honest, it always struck me as a little bit weird. You know, I didn't really understand why you had to walk over hot coals, you know? But Apparently, um, people love it, and people love him. so I stumbled upon some research where there's this religious sect, kind of a, a splinter Greek orthodox sect that for hundreds and hundreds of years ha its followers come from all over to walk on hot stones, and it's very similar and when they've ident- and they've tried to ban it in Greece a bunch of times, but people will go underground with it, it's ridiculously powerful and when people ask. You know when journalists have interviewed these people about why they do this they 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 usually come up with some spiritual reason that differs from thing to thing. but what it comes down to is they come for the burning of their feet and there's been research done that when you experience a small amount of pain or discomfort, it actually creates a feeling of transcendence. So you don't want to torture somebody, you don't want to harm somebody. But if everything is just flowers and sunshine and without grit, you know, without obstacles, they won't feel transcendent. They won't be addicted to your ideas in the same way. And so like Mm -hmm. Andy Warhol used to throw these big parties. And whenever he saw people just having a good old time and sort of dancing, he'd put on like a jarring sound. Or we see this with Tom Peters, the, the consultant. He constantly calls people out in the audience and kind of choose them out for doing things the wrong way. Having that sort of antagonism mixed with all the good stuff, it 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 increases the spread of your ideas. It increases their desire to be with you. It sounds a little masochistic, but it but it is it is it is how our brains are wired.
0: No, I mean it's interesting. Um, the uh, the people people don't. I have a hypothesis that when you're, you know, when you're riding high and you're achieving great things and you're footloose and free, the fair weather fr- friends that you meet up there in that loofy, goofy place, <laughs> those aren't those aren't friends. Right. But when you're in the trenches and you look to your left and you look to your right and you realize who's around you when times are tough, those are those are bonds that are going to be with you for the rest of your life. In, in a business world, that's customer loyalty. Right. That's employee retention. That's getting through the tough times and building enduring personal resources and resilience and strength as a community. Um, you know, in, in our work, gratitude, right? Giving gratitude to those tough times, the grateful processing of the positive consequences that have occurred through tough times, is what builds enduring resources: hope, pride, creativity, optimism.
1: Do you see that? Yeah, it, it's. I think you're exactly right, and you're you're making me think about this a little bit differently. So I'll. I just kind of came up with a hypothesis that may be totally unfounded, but I can imagine in an evolutionary sense being able to derive some sort of almost pleasure from small amounts of pain makes you a survivor like i i talked to a guy recently um who is a sailor a, a, not a sailor he was an olympic rower I'll, his name's adam creek and he um now is a business consultant really good guy But when I asked him why he took up rowing, he said, I liked the stress of it. And I was like, you like the stress? He goes, yeah, I I like having some stress. That makes it more enjoyable for me. And I think people who are wired that way probably thrive better in life, right? Because those times will inevitably come. So if they just break you and turn you into a quivering puddle, then you're in pretty bad shape from a survival perspective.
0: Yep. The it's um it's interesting Tiger Woods did that when his dad died he went in you know trained with the Marines right they beat they beat him up they shot him down they literally crushed his soul right and, and it birthed Tiger Woods look Kurt Vonnegut a great science fiction writer uh, from way back when, he's my favorite <laughs> he, yeah so yeah. if you if, if so for the readers this is the guy that did a lot of social experiments just like Michael F Shine. <laughs> And one of the things that he found in, in narrative storytelling, one of the most popular emotional arcs a protagonist can go on, is if you knock them down in the beginning, only to build them up as the hero in the end. Right. Take Superman. Right. First scene, you learn of Kryptonite. Oh my God, he's got a fatal flaw. Right. Let's, let's cheer him on. And then he becomes the hero. And what's really neat, so in, in positive psychology, they call it a micro-intervention. You take a miserable person, you put them through a micro intervention and you pop them out feeling hope, pride, optimism, self-confidence, self-efficacy. There's two things that are proven to have a lasting benefit after positive psychology micro intervention. One is mindfulness and the other is gratitude. Here's the link I'm trying to make. You remember the question we asked at the beginning of this episode and y'all, the listeners here have heard that so many times. If you could give credit or thanks to one person in your life that you don't, who would that be? I'm not asking you what you're grateful for. I'm asking you to go way deep in the past with a little bit of guilt, (laughs) with a little bit of regret, with a little bit of shame. Oh my God, who have I never thought to thank? Mm -hmm. We've just micro-engineered guilt, shame, regret, trauma in a 10-second window.
1: Do you think that's good for people, Michael? Well, I'll I'll tell you, when you were saying that, I I think about one of the things that you always say to me. It's that if someone isn't crying at one of your dinners, you're (laughs) upset. Now, logically, why would you want people to come out to an event so that you can make them feel I mean, crying is is what we do when we don't feel happy, right? But there's something happens in that room. And I would go so far as to say, well, first of all, I would like to say I think that's beneficial for them. But I would also go so far as to say that probably helps your hype. The fact that people talk about that and that your business has grown and grown and grown and that you bring it up every time sort of proves this point that not only is, is this something that's good for people in small doses, but that it increases your noteworthiness and your buzz and your contagiousness.
0: Yeah. You know, it's, it's um, tears from gratitude, turn into creativity and innovation. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the tears from the great black death, of the 1340s through the 1370s in Italy, those tears, that great trauma, that black death, it birthed the Italian Renaissance. Yeah,
1: yeah
0: 100%. The Spanish flu of 1918 and World War One, it
1: birthed the Roaring Twenties. Yeah, World it War II birthed, you know, our golden era, basically. Yeah.
0: So, anyways, I don't want to get off topic from your book, but just... Just to connect it back to the readers, or the listeners, especially the listeners who have been to, well, either our in-person gratitude experiences or our virtual gratitude experiences, whatever makes you keep coming back, that's what's in Michael's book. I just wanted to, you know, specifically, whatever I do around the dinner table, literally with a goal of saying, if less than six people cry, we consider it a failed night. That is in hype strategy number 10 embracing theater and drama, which happens to also be the same hype strategy of the Tony Robbins alternating doses of pleasure and pain. So
1: I actually want to make that, I just want to chime in here for a second, Chris, because I think you are such a good hype artist in the positive sense of the word. And you don't even know it. So like this idea that you're all about positive things and gratitude, but you're picking a fight with the opposite of that, with the opposite idea that you have to be, you know, a hard driving dog eat dog business person. You get people to cry. I mean, you do many of these things, which is why you're so successful. You just do it in a well-intentioned way. And, and if more people, if people could learn from my work and read my book and say, I want to use these tactics that sometimes nefarious people had you have used, but apply them for good. A, it can be done and B, the world would be a much better place. If more people like you were applying these things in that way.
0: Yeah. So if if you're a good person, read the book and do something about it. If you're a bad person, still buy the book, but don't do anything with it. Well, also, like, <laughs> The bad
1: people get it anyway. You know, I mean, they, they yeah. tend to come to it pretty naturally. Yeah. yeah. I mean,
0: you know, there's a whole chapter about Donald Trump in here. Uh, we won't even go there. <laughs> right. But, um, uh, it, you know, it's it's um, and, and anyways. Thank you for saying about me that I mean, literally, like I read the book. You know, a couple of days ago and last week I looked at the team and I said, All right, for our next Rolling Stone article, let's literally title it Fuck Your Gratitude Journal.
1: <laughs> I love that. And by the way, congrats for that Rolling Stone thing. I haven't talked to you, but I did see that online. That's very let's, cool. Hey, let's yeah. let's get
0: you let's get you in. You've got better thoughts than me. That's for darn sure. <laughs> I don't know about that. Uh, but sh- yeah. Shout out to Scott Gerber and Ryan Paw for that. <laughs> um but no it Me saying "fuck your gratitude journal" isn't saying "fuck gratitude." It's saying "fuck everything you know or think you know about what being what being grateful means." No, no, no. I'm gonna ask you guilt, shame, regret, fear. Who have you never thought to thank? I'm gonna make you cry. You're gonna overcome your mommy issues, and you're gonna keep coming back.
1: That's exactly right. That's a great title. It's not. It's not fuck gratitude. It's fuck setting aside 15 minutes to talk about the five obvious people you're grateful for and then forgetting about gratitude for the rest of the day. That's an awesome make war not love strategy
0: yeah right there totally yeah that's that's why I'm so excited for this podcast. Anyways, I want to go back to hype strategy number two speaking of gratitude.
1: Yeah, that's your jam right there.
0: Yeah hype strategy <laughs> number two is to create your own secret society playing with ego, appreciation, and recognition. This is where I want to close out the podcast. You literally, you literally write that by playing with the most deep seated of human desires, right? To be recognized, to be appreciated and to be noticed, which is everything we do around gratitude and the dinner table. This is why I wanted to close on it. Also, you write about Andy Warhol and it, you mentioned Andy Warhol. <laughs> why is that so important?
1: Cause that's what I want to end on. you know, it, it, I learned, I mean, you're the master of this. And I'm not just saying that to to sort of um, make you feel good. You know, I've really looked up to the way you tap into this idea. The idea is that there are people out there who we often think of as unapproachable. Like a lot of us lament the fact that we're not part of an old boys network. And when we're thinking that we're not as successful as we could be, we say to ourselves, oh, you know, it's who you know, and I don't know anybody. And something that I accidentally stumbled upon in my own career was that even powerful and influential people are always missing something that you can give them. Mm -hmm. And it's usually something very amorphous that's easy for you to give that we don't think about. So you run a dinky little blog that maybe one day will be huge, but right now it's not. Just writing someone and saying, I'm profiling the top 20 people and I've always admired your work. Can I profile you? You'll be amazed at how very powerful people will just feel honored that there's a <laughs> younger person who thinks they're the top 20 pe- person and they'll talk to you. Um, you know, I knew a, a gentleman, I know a gentleman and met a gentleman once who owns a half billion dollar company, a company that he founded from nothing that does a half billion in revenue. So And I was just starting out. What could I possibly give this guy? So I interviewed him um, for a column I was doing in Inc. And at the end, he he let slip that he had just moved from Indiana to New York and um, loved live music, but didn't know of any of the live music places. And I happened to know a lot about that. So I pointed him in the direction and even took him out once or twice. And this guy became my mentor because that was something I had that was very easy and cheap for me to give away that meant a lot to him. And this guy could have hired somebody. He could have hired, you know, I don't know, Elvis Presley's grandson to do that job. I mean, I, I don't know. That's a ridiculous example, but you know what I'm saying. But he he didn't think of it that way. So we all have deep emotional needs. We all want to be appreciated. We all want to be looked up to. We all want you know, our loved ones to be taken care of. If someone's got kids and you do something for their kids, even if it's introducing them to someone who went to the college they want to get into, they will help you for the rest of their lives. So that, that is really important to do create your own old boys network or what I call a secret society. And it's much more doable than we give ourselves credit for. But I think you've built your career around that, Chris. I think that's what you preach.
0: Yeah. I mean, look, I, I don't want to keep bringing it back to me. I just want to say yes. And look, I I suck at explaining to people how we've gotten to be whatever success we've gotten it's all outlined in Michael's book, y'all. He did the hard work for me, but what I'll connect to what you're saying when you're talking about, you know, you know, uh, sometimes you know people just want to share their story, you know, I, I think about appreciation and recognition. and again, it all comes back to gratitude. What do you give someone who has everything in the world? Exactly. What do you buy a billionaire? You don't. You shut up, and you offer to tell their story and create a safe space for them to actually be human again. Mm-hmm. Show them gratitude, and let them show gratitude to others. And I swear to God, y'all, you will win every time. Very our well cli- said. Our yeah. clients run companies, everything from mom and pop shops to literally fifty billion dollar companies. Actually. Our clients are C suite at couple hundred billion, no, sorry, trillion dollar companies. This is a proven strategy. These are strategies to not only get you in the door with any I don't know, mom and pop, mid-market, venture back, the brand, whatever you want to talk to. These are the strategies I've used literally to have face-to-face meetings with Bill Gates, Michael Dell, and even four-year-old kids. Homeless on the Streets of Skid Row. It works, and it's all outlined in Michael F. Shine's book. With that, I say, Michael, thank you for coming on this podcast. Do you have any last words in closing?
1: Well, the pleasure was all mine. I really enjoyed this. And gosh, I don't know I, I I don't think I could say it better than you just said it. It's amazing how so many of the good ideas out there, and these ideas aren't mine. I took them from the great thinkers, the great hype artists. It's just so amazing how human beings, react to the same exact stimuli with different packaging over and over and over again. And it's yeah, out there we to learn. Which yeah. likely,
0: by the way, is uh, hype strategy number three. Perfect your packaging, same stuff, different <laughs> packaging. <laughs> literally, I literally published a, uh, I was speaking at the United Nations one year and I, you know, got up on stage and I said, y'all, look, history is our greatest teacher. We'd be fools to ignore it. Innovation is just history repeating itself. Right looking different it's the same shit just looks a different way that's
1: exactly right
0: that's life y'all and it's also you know what what michael f shine's talking about in this book is hope for the future of our world look we it's january it's january 21st 2021 2020 was a pretty tough year but let's be honest it wasn't the toughest year in human history we'll get through it it's not the The You know, the most socially divided we've ever been. We didn't lose the most amount of people. There have been far bigger things we've survived. The same challenges they faced then are the same challenges that we face now, which gives us hope to say, let's just package up the solutions a little bit different. Don't try to reinvent the wheel. And we can pretty much guarantee you success.
1: Does that sound right? Absolutely.
0: Well, we've held y'all too long. I thank you for keep tuning in. You know, I think at 38 minutes, this is one of the, the, uh, the longest episodes that we've done. I've got, I've got Scott Case, the founding CTO of Priceline.com waiting in my Zoom room. And I feel so bad that I'll be late for him, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't have any, any other way with the guy that once hand fed me calamari. So <laughs> I'll wait. do it anytime. <laughs> go, go to Amazon. You'll see the link below. Check out the hype handbook. You know, find Michael on LinkedIn, find Michael at microfamemedia.com. Obviously, if you believe in what I do, you believe in what he does, and he'll make you millions. So keep coming back, keep tuning in. If you like what we talked about, click that subscribe button, share it with your friends, promote these messages. Um, you know, keep tuning in. We got really groovy folks, uh, you know, that'll be, you know, keep coming on this podcast. I think. I think last week we we released yeah last week we released an episode with our dear friend eighteen time major champion golfer Gary Player the winningest international golfer of all time. Next week we have a conversation uh, with I don't know where it is uh, with with Kansas City Royal the voice of the Kansas City Royals Joel Goldberg and his new book. So keep coming back. It works if you work it. I hope y'all are having a phenomenal day on Earth. Remember, folks, it's your world. Go explore it and do it with hype. we will talk to you soon.